You know that song that we just sang, there's a great reminder at the end, and that is that, that hope that God's truth would prevail over unbelief. You know, ultimately, that's what we need is faith. Faith in God. We need to see Him for who He is and trust Him and believe that He is who He says He is, that He is who He says He is to us in relationship. And so, just in case you're ever wondering or maybe need a little bit of calibration, that's what this is all about this morning. That's what uh, this is all about, honoring God and worshiping God that, that we might be elevated in faith towards Him. That's why there is the preaching of the Word and singing That's why we do these things, to honor God, and then within our own hearts to be elevated, to be lifted up in our faith, that we would see him as he is. Paul says in Romans 14 that without faith it is impossible. Well, he says there that that anything not done in faith is sin. And the writer of Hebrews says without faith it's impossible to please God. And so we know that the ultimate expression of worship, really, is not just having a happy disposition while we sing. It's not uh, closing our eyes or, or listening really intently, but it is faith towards God. That's what pleases him. That's what honors him. So please go with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19, as we ask the Lord to grow our faith this morning through the preaching of the word. Genesis 3, 16 to 19, we are in a series on Genesis, which we have been for some time. We are in Genesis chapter 3, which means that we are in the fall, this portion of Genesis that really we've been working towards now for a couple chapters. I mean, in many ways, what we get in chapters 1 and 2 are meant to set up the fall so that the fall makes some kind of sense. Chapter 2 expands On chapter 1, it expands on that portion of chapter 1 concerned with day 6 so that the individuals involved in the scene of the fall are clearly in place so that we can be introduced to the origin of sin and death, struggle and strife. So that's where we find ourselves in the fall. Last week, we looked at God's judgment on the devil And that was in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. And we see there that through the the symbol of the serpent, Satan used the serpent as an instrument. And through God's words to the serpent, Satan is judged. He's sentenced. And we saw there essentially two things. First, that Satan would be brought low. He would be brought even lower. He was cast out of heaven to the earth. We learn from other passages in the Bible He was a fallen angel, but now we get his utter humiliation as he will be cast down into the dirt, symbolized and imaged for us in the slithering serpent upon the ground. So he will be humiliated, and from verse 15 we see that he and his works will ultimately be destroyed by the human seed. And so... Through God's words to the serpent, to Satan, God gives this promise that the the seed of the woman, her future offspring, her future descendant, would bruise the head of the serpent, that Satan would be 
defeated. He would be humiliated and ultimately he would be fatally wounded or destroyed. God's only word to Satan is a word of judgment. And we talked a little bit about that last week. There are no questions for the devil and there is no hope. But when it comes to God's judgment on the humans, which we're going to look at today, the picture is quite different. It's a very different picture. Now, we we can miss the details that precede God's judgment of Adam and Eve or, or the man and the woman. We can miss some of the details leading up to that, and we can miss this point. But the point that we need to see here is that God's judgment on the humans is categorically different than his judgment on Satan. For Satan, there is no hope. There are no questions. But there are two details that we've already seen leading up to the judgment of the humans that is very important for understanding that it's something categorically different. The first of those is that God's judgment, which we're going to look at today, is preceded by a gentle approach and searching questions. And we saw that in verses 9 to 13, that when Adam and Eve sinned, God does not come in the form of a lightning bolt from heaven to zap them, snuff them out, to destroy them. As he could have done, he could have done that justly, but God does not do that. He does not come running through the garden, blasting them with words of accusation. He doesn't do that. God comes to them as a loving father and he comes to them asking questions to draw out the state condition of their hearts. He comes as a loving father who is seeking repentance. So what does this tell us? We're going into this passage on judgment today and we already see here the hope of relationship by God's initiative. We talked about uh, when we looked at verses 9 to 13 We talked about how God seeks the lost. What does he do? He comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. He's seeking the lost, and he approaches them as a gentle, loving father. So we see hope. This is a judgment with hope, the hope of relationship and the hope of grace and repentance. We've already got that before we get to this passage. What else do we have? Well, we have God's judgment being preceded by a promise of future victory over Satan. And one of the things I pointed out last week is that victory over Satan ultimately implies a reversal of everything from the beginning of verse 1. Remember when Satan appears on the scene? That's kind of the the first domino, if you will. That's the, the beginning of the domino effect that has led to all of this. We have Satan tempting Eve. So when the humans hear... This this truth that the head of the serpent will be bruised or crushed, they are meant to understand that everything that has happened is to be reversed. Not only will he be crushed, but the New Testament is clear. His works, what are his works? What are the instruments of Satan, the instruments, the weapons in the hands of Satan? Sin and death. These works will be reversed. So we have the hope of reversal. So before we get to judgment, this is my point, in case you've lost me. As we're approaching judgment, the judgment of the human beings, the hope of grace, 
the hope of relationship, the hope of victory, and the hope of reversal are all feeding into this judgment of the human beings. This is an incredible picture of the God who reveals himself to Moses as being filled with love and graciousness and forgiveness. These are, these are little details that you could miss, but when we contrast God's interaction with Satan with God's interaction with the humans, we begin to see that even here, we're dealing with a judgment infused with hope, infused with grace. And that, of course, is going to set the tone for all of Scripture, because all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about God's plan of redemption through the seed, all of it. Genesis 3.15 sets the tone for the storyline of the Bible, and what precedes that sets the tone as well. So this is a hope-infused judgment. Nevertheless, there is judgment. God judges disobedience. What does this tell us? Very simply, it tells us that disobeying God is a big deal. What we have here before we get into the details of this passage is just the bare fact of God's judgment. Just the, the raw fact that God judges sin. That God judges disobedience. So what's the response before we get into the details of this text? Of that general truth that God judges disobedience. I think the first thing it tells us is that the first thing it encourages us to be is serious about sin. So let me just ask this question. Is there in your life, in your Christian life, you're a believer, if you're a believer, is there a general seriousness about sin or is it a trivial matter? There's a passage in Proverbs that has always struck me. And I've mentioned it before. It's Proverbs 8.13. And it says, well, first let me, let me go back. We learn elsewhere in Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. You've, you've probably seen that passage before. Well, then you raise the question, what is the fear of the Lord? Okay, I want to be wise. I want to be knowledgeable. I want to understand. So I need the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? And God does not leave us without an answer. He doesn't leave it vague or general. In Proverbs 8, 13, he says this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So easy question. Do you hate evil? I don't mean evil as you see it talked about on the news. It's something you get all, uh, all uh, excited about a cause. Maybe for you, maybe you're kind of a, an idealist and maybe every little cause kind of strikes you and you get up in arms and you're ready to go and march for a particular cause. It's easy to get excited about evil or against evil when it's out there and it's a big general cause. So we hate evil. I hate injustice. I hate someone else's sin. But the more difficult matter is to hate sin in our own lives to hate the evil that consumes our own hearts. So would you say in your own life there's a, there is a kind of hate in you? In every Christian, there should be a kind of hate for evil. 
The second thing I think this encourages us to do before we get into the details, just on in generally looking at the bare fact that God judges sin, judges disobedience, is that we should be grateful for the sin bearer. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus took every single act of our disobedience upon himself at the cross. Every single time that you have disobeyed God, Every time, in the past, today, every time you will disobey God, I will disobey God in the future, Jesus took all of that disobedience. He took all of those acts of disobedience upon himself and he paid the penalty for that at the cross for those of us who would believe in him. So seriousness about sin, gratitude for the sin bearer. Anytime we consider God's judgment, both of these things should be present in us. Seriousness about sin and gratitude for the sin bearer. So the title for the sermon today is simply The Divine Judgment as we come to God's judgment of Adam and Eve. We've looked at so far as we've gone through Genesis 3 and the fall here, we've, gone, we've seen the deadly dialogue, the temptation of sat- that where, where Satan tempts Eve, we've seen the deadly deed itself where uh, Adam and Eve both eat from the tree. We've seen the divine interrogation where God comes to them. As I just mentioned, he comes to them as the loving father and he asks them the penetrating questions to draw out what's in their hearts. And then last week we saw the defeated devil. And today we get the divine judgment. So go ahead and stand with me if you will. We're going to read God's word, Genesis 3. And today we're looking at verses 16 to 19, but I'm going to start reading in verse 6, just so we have the the whole context here. It's not the whole context, but fills out a large bit of it. So verse 6, right on the heels of Satan's temptation of Eve. This is God's word. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, no question there, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We talked last week about how the he there is Christ, the seed of the woman. And the New Testament picks up on this in many ways. Verse 16, which is where we're going to start today, through verse 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You can go ahead and be seated. As we commune with God, go and talk to Him in prayer. Let's ask for His blessing on our time. Let's ask that He will give us all grace to to hear His Word and to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in each of us. Our Father in heaven, This is, these are hard words to hear this morning. I think they're harder to hear when we have felt the sting of them in our own lives, even recently. Some of us have experienced the death of loved ones. Some of us are experiencing the effects of the fall on our bodies, on our world all of us experiencing the effects of the fall in various ways, ways that we don't even see. Father, these are hard words. They're real words. We, we feel these words in daily life. And Father, I ask this morning that you would give me the grace to communicate clearly what is here in these verses. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would be before you as we hear your word preached and as we meditate on the meaning. Father, we ask that you would hallow your name in us even as we sit here this morning, even as we come together and that you would exalt Christ in our hearts, that his reign over us would become more and more evident in the way we live and the way we think, the things we love, the way we treat other people our disciplines, and the way we spend our time. Father, that you would reign supreme in each of us. Father, we pray that you would meet our needs. We know we have many reflected here in our church. We know that you are the great provider. Father, you don't always provide like we would uh, want you to in in our lack of wisdom. But Father, we know that you wisely and lovingly provide all that we need and that you ultimately will provide all that we need in glory. And so, Father, we pray that we would trust you for the provisions we come here needing this morning. We, we come here differently. Some of us uh, just feel beat down, weighed down by life. And, Father, I pray that this morning would be sobering in the realization that our expectations have to be managed in a fallen world, yet you provide. 
You take care of the birds of heaven. You take care of the flowers of the field. How much more will you, our heavenly Father, take care of us? Especially those of us who belong to you as sons and daughters. So, Father, we are anticipating your provisions physically and spiritually, and we just ask that you would would do that for us this morning. Father, we ask that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would forgive us of our sins, and that you would grow within each heart this morning a hatred of sin, just a, a hatred of the vileness of our own sin. And God, through that, that Christ would be elevated in each of us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come this morning to, the, to God's judgment on both the man and the woman, I've decided to treat them together. As I was going through, I thought I might spend some time first on God's judgment on the woman and then go to the man, but I think it's fitting to, to just treat this as an entire unit. This is God's judgment on humanity collectively, and it comes through God's judgment specifically. It takes particular forms in the life of the woman and in the lives of women since Eve and in the life of the man and in the lives of men since Adam. And there are ways of seeing how these things, uh, the lines are even blurred here as we see the effects on both the woman and the man in these two separate oracles of judgment from God to the human beings. And so what do we find when we read God's judgment here? I think it's three things, essentially. So the divine judgment, we have the toil first. Second, we have the tension. And third, the termination. The toil, the tension, and the termination. So let's look first at the toil. The toil. One of the first elements that we observe when reading God's judgment on the woman, probably if we just read through these verses, verses 16 to 19, probably the most striking feature that would be there is this consequence of pain. It gets repeated three times in this section. And by the way, anytime you're reading a passage of Scripture and a word gets repeated, that tells you something. That's an important word. It's an important idea. It's just a basic, very basic hermeneutical principle or interpretive principle is that if a word is repeated, it must be significant. And this is the the most obvious word. It gets repeated these three times in this passage. In verse 16, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then in verse 17, God says to the man and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. And notice that, by the way, this language, let me just a little side note here. This language of you have listened to the voice of your wife, the construction really could be rendered obey that Adam obeyed his wife rather than God. God told him directly, don't do this. And Eve said, here. And Adam said, okay. And he ate. But it says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of you. This world's messed up because of us. It's our fault that the world is broken. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So we see this word pain here in this passage three separate times. The Hebrew word translated pain in the first part of verse 16 for the woman is the same word used for the man. And so what does this word mean? Pain. The meaning of the word is anxious toil or hardship. That's what's going on here. In Genesis 5:29, which is the only other occurrence of this word in the Hebrew Bible, it says it, it, it refers to painful toil. I cited this verse last week regarding Noah. There it's translated painful toil. Essentially, it is a word that means hard labor. There will be hard labor for the woman, and there will be hard labor for the man. It will fall on both of them, but it will fall on each of them in different ways. As for the woman, the commission that God gave the humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth will now be a toilsome ordeal accompanied by suffering. In pregnancy, in birth, and even in the raising of those children, she will experience pain. You could say it this way. In her multiplying, God will multiply her pain. Ladies who've had a child you know this experience. You have experienced this firsthand. Now, it's different for each lady. I know, uh, I'll just speak personally, Jennifer, my wife, she labors very, very well. She'll, she'll tell you that. It's very quick. Some of you are a little bitter right now. Uh, but <laughs> it, she, she, labors, she labors very quickly. And, and it, it's, you know, it just seems to just, Breeze by. Maybe that's just, maybe it's not a breeze. It doesn't breeze by at all, but that's at least my impression. Um, just in terms of how long it takes. Not, not breeze, wrong word there. I'll take that one out. But her pregnancies are horrific. I mean, the nausea, not just nausea, but throwing up constantly, the vomiting and all of that. She's probably thinking TMI. Uh, but it's the case. Her pregnancies are terrible, but her labors are pretty good. And, and of course, you know, Jennifer, when she was pregnant, I can remember her talking to other ladies who just like breeze through pregnancy. I mean, don't even have a hiccup, nothing. No, no itching, no indigestion, no hip issues, nothing. I mean, everything's fine. But then the labor comes and it's terrible. Either way, Ladies who have experienced uh, having children have experienced this curse of the fall from Eve, the mother of all living. This is a real experience. And I think it's even connected to the raising of those children and the psychological kind of toil that goes into nursing small children and then having small children at home and trying to keep them from falling against sharp corners and into fires and going out into the street and picking up a knife and drinking toilet bowl cleaner. I don't know, whatever it is, but they have to be protected. This entire situation of, of getting pregnant, having children, and then caring for those children is one that is marked by painful toil. In her multiplying, God will multiply her pain. This is real judgment for real sin. 
And as for the man, he doesn't get off the hook at all. The work of his hands, his efforts to provide for his family, his daily activities will be characterized by toil. The ground will now be cursed, as it says in verse 17. This curse will mean a lack of productivity and unhelpful growth. So verse 18 says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And this curse will mean that the man will have to exert much effort to secure his food. You know, Adam is strolling through the garden, picking delicious fruit off of the trees. This fruit grows on the trees. God planted these trees. And God provided for Adam. Adam's work in the garden, he did work in the garden. He wasn't aimless. He wasn't just wandering around. He wasn't just twiddling his thumbs or staring up into into the sky, he was working. But whatever we are to, to understand about Adam's work in the garden, it was not accompanied by toil. It was not accompanied by labor, so to speak. Calvin puts it this way, that it's as though Adam was exiled to the mines. He was sent to the mines. A leisurely, fulfilling satisfying, joyful, rich way of life, working unto God was replaced with toil. Toil to secure food against an earth that will not produce as he wishes. Will produce other things, weeds and thorns and thistles and all of this. It's interesting. One of the arguments that I've heard, in fact, I heard uh, I've heard this from a number of, of folks, but Ken Ham, who runs uh, Answers in Genesis, has commented on this, and others have too, that it's interesting. We have fossils of thorns. We have fossils of thorns. So the question being, okay, so if we have fossils of thorns and we are to understand, now some would say, well, this doesn't mean that thorns just began to exist at the fall. They, they, they preceded the fall, but those same folks would say, well, death also preceded the fall. And there's a, there's a whole host of arguments associated with this. But I think it's interesting to note that there are fossils of thorns and the only sense that we get, the basic sense, I should say instead, that we get from Genesis 3 is that thorns were introduced at the fall which means that whatever we are to make of those fossils, they would come after the fall. Perhaps some have made that argument. But we see that Adam would struggle to secure his food. You shall eat the plants of the field, verse 18, verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Did Adam sweat in the garden? I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But we know that he did not sweat in any kind of toilsome labor. Now he will sweat his way to his food. He will labor his way to his food. He will have less of it sometimes, more of it other times. He will battle drought and famine and other kinds of calamities. And I think we could extend this just to the general struggle that we as men in particular have to provide for our families. I mean, we could go around here in this room and talk to individual husbands and fathers about the struggle of providing for the home, the struggles that go into securing our bread. All of that goes back to the fall. 
So what is going on here? Why this particular form of judgment? It seems God could have said a whole host of things here. Why these particular forms of judgment? Well, this judgment puts before each of them and before each of us a constant reminder of sin and its consequences. Why? Why do these particular judgments put before us always a reminder of sin and its consequences? And the answer is this. God meets them with toil at those points of satisfaction and activity. In other words, the woman, especially in this cultural context, as, as, as you move forward in ancient Israel, the woman is going to be with the children. And there's going to be a constant reminder in this, both in the satisfaction that her children bring her and in the amount of time spent with those children, giving birth to children, being pregnant with children, a constant reminder of her sin, a constant reminder of the sin that led to her own sin. And so too with the man every day as he leaves his home and he goes out into the fields, so to speak, and he works and he faces struggles in his work, difficulties, lack of produce, inability, frustrations of every kind. He's reminded of the fall, always before his face, always before her face, the fall, sin, disobedience. The early church father, John Chrysostom, puts it this way. For the woman, he says, and he's kind of paraphrasing the Lord here, he says, I will ensure, he is saying, that the generation of children, a reason for great satisfaction for you, will begin with pain, so that each time without fail, you will personally have a reminder through the distress and pain of each birth of the magnitude of this sin of disobedience. But for the man, he says this, I condemn you to toil and labor, so that while tilling the earth, you may never forget your disobedience and the vileness of your nature. You know, isn't it amazing that just as I said last week, that, that the serpent itself reminds us of sin and the gospel, the sin and the Savior. Because anytime, anytime, I said this at the very beginning, anytime we're reminded of sin, we should be immediately, as Christians, we should be immediately reminded of the Savior. The sin brings to mind the one who came to defeat sin. The sin brings to mind the one who was born because he would take away the sins of his people. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In fact, Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, means Savior, essentially. The Lord's salvation. So the implication, I think, for us is that in some of our hardest moments, God is communicating our need for a Savior. Now, I imagine as you're giving birth that you're probably not meditating on this in the middle of your labor. I can imagine that, that, that this is not gonna be at the forefront of your mind, but what I'm saying is that it really should be that when we, when we confront these difficulties, these hardships, and I think by extension, any hardship associated with the fall Let's let the frustration that we have in that moment, the toil that we have, the pain that we have, the hard labor that we have in that moment begin to direct us to consideration of divine things. In other words, they force us to a point of meditating upon the gospel. And in fact, Colossians 3 says, set 
your minds on things above. At the very beginning of that chapter, set your minds on things above. And what the Lord has given us is a constant means by which we can set our minds on things above. As we encounter these frustrations, we are immediately drawn to the reality of sin and the reality of a Savior. I want to give you another reason for this particular form of judgment. Their pain in these two areas will be met with God's provision. This is amazing. So what we have here with the woman is that bearing children will be hard, but it is at this point of pain that God will provide the victorious seed. In other words, at the very point of of struggle, at the very point of difficulty and pain and toil, there's a reminder that God will overcome that. Do you see that? Through the seed, the same is true of the man. Working the ground will be hard, but it, it at this point, but at this point of pain, God will show his provisions for man's needs. Man will work the ground and he will do that in pain and toil, but God will provide food from the earth. And so in all of this, God shows that he overcomes the effects of sin. He overcomes the effects of sin through the birth of the seed. He overcomes the effects of sin through giving us a new earth, a new plentiful earth pointed to by the fact that he provides for us in this broken earth. So that's the toil. But there is more to the consequence than this painful toil. And the second thing I want to look at is the tension. The tension. One of the most common things that I've confronted as a pastor and that we've dealt with really as an elder board here at our church is marital tension. Marital strife. Marital difficulties and struggles. In fact, when I meet with a couple or talk with an individual about marital issues, one of the first things that I tell them is, you're not alone in this. And I think that's the case. Sometimes you're going through and you feel like there's issues in your marriage and you're looking around at all these, uh, you assume, happy marriages that are just so great and everything's so perfect, and you look at your own and you think, man, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? We're so terrible. This is awful. Everybody else has it together and I don't. Well, I can at least say this. No, that's not the case, that there are many people struggling in their relationships with their spouses and in their marriages, and so it's one of the things that we have seen a lot of. It's one of the things that has taken a lot of the time. I don't mean this in a negative way, like you're you're taking the time, but I mean this in the sense that really, honestly, it has, we've spent lots of time in prayer as elders in our meetings and in other contexts for marriages here in our church. This is something that is common to us as human beings. And on a general level, We know that marriage is hard because in every single case, it involves the union of two sinners. Now, you might be thinking, no, no, hold on a second. There's only one sinner in this marriage. (laughs) No, that's not the case. And, And you're most certainly not looking at yourself in that. It's not the case. There are two sinners in every marriage, right? Two self guided, self centered, fallen, depraved sinners in every single 
marriage. So that's the general reason why we have trouble in our marriages. But if we want to get a little more specific as to why marriages struggle, we have to go back to the judgment of God in Genesis 3. And I would say even that the beginnings, the seed of all marital strife, the seed of all marital struggle worldwide, ultimately in some form goes back to what we see here in Genesis 3. We have to go back to the tension that resulted from the fall. And in order to see this, look at the second part of verse 16. The second part of verse 16 as God addresses the woman. He says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now what in the world is going on there? And why would that be considered the origin of all the strife that we experience in the world today in marriage? What does it mean? Let's ask this question first, because this is the main question. What does it mean that her desire shall be contrary to her husband? What is going on with that? And in order to understand that, you, you really have to go to Genesis 4, 7. Genesis 4, 7 helps us to interpret this because of its use of the same language. And there it's a very different context. Uh, it's Cain is angry because God has not accepted his sacrifice. He's accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And so God comes to Cain and he warns him. This is before Cain kills his brother. He warns him. He says, Cain, asks him why he's angry, why is his face fallen? And God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here we have the very same writer of these words in Genesis 3, giving them in Genesis 4, which gives us a, a, a clue to its interpretation. How are we to understand these words in Genesis 3? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Well, here, its desire is contrary to you means that sin is seeking control over Cain. So think about that. Sin is crouching at the door. It's seeking control over Cain, but he must rule over it. That's what these words mean. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband means this. The woman will seek to control her husband. Part of the tension that results from the fall is that the woman will seek to control her husband. And this desire will be met with frustration by the woman. Here's where the, the judgment begins to, to become realized in the life of the woman. This desire will be met with frustration by her. It will be met with the dominating force of the man. And unfortunately, in this fallen world, it will tend towards harsh and oppressive domination. You don't have to go very far historically or geographically to see all the ways in the history of the world in which women have been oppressed in which women have been held down, trampled upon, 
subjugated, treated as property, dismissed, uncared for. You don't have to go far at all to see, both historically and geographically, you don't have to go far to see that this has been the experience of women throughout history. Women working to control their husbands and men dominating and being harsh and unsympathetic with their wives. This is the core problem in all marriage. This battle, this enmity between the sexes, as, as some commentators call it, this, this battle, this warfare that goes under the, the radar between the sexes. On the one hand, seeking to control to be independent, maybe to manipulate, and on the other hand, dominating, oppressing, harsh, and unsympathetic with the wife. Among wives, this can manifest itself. There's kind of two sides to this coin. This can manifest itself in a loud defiance of his leadership, a kind of loud, angry, yelling, belittling, degrading, nagging, however you want to put it. It's a loud form of defiance, seeking to control him. On the other hand, it can be a quiet resolve to do your own thing that undermines his leadership. It can be kind of passive-aggressive. It can be, a lead, it can be a, a lead loud thing or it can be a subtle thing. But it is part of the fallen dynamic between the husband and her wife. What about the husband? So for the wife, you have those two sides of it. What about the husband? Well, among husbands, it can be an active and harsh micromanaging. A kind of, you better have dinner on the table at this time. Why is the house not clean? I want to do this. Let's do this. This is how we're going to do it. Why aren't you respecting me? You're not submitting to my authority in the home, and so forth. This kind of, this kind of oppressive, hard attitude towards the wife. It could take that form, dominating her. Or it can be a passive indifference to her. That's also a form of domination. Here's what I mean by that. It can be the kind of husband who's just checked out. He's just doing his own thing. It's a way of saying, you know what? I'm, I'm the man in this relationship. It's a subtle thing. I'm the husband. I'm the man. I'll just kind of do what I want. And I can't be held accountable. So you just detach. You're passive. You do your thing. You do what you want to do don't care about your wife's feelings. It's a kind of passive indifference to her. This is what you see in marriages. If we're honest, this is what we see in our own marriage. It's what we see. And when it's at its worst, this is what we see. This goes back to the fall. But what is God's intention for marriage? And let me say it this way. What is made possible by the Spirit? Let me say it this way. How is this lessened, how is this effect of the fall lessened in the Christian home? Because this is the glory of it all. Is that it's, this, is, this is part and parcel of life in this world between husband and wife. This is, this is the fallenness manifesting itself in various ways. In every marriage, in various ways, this is the root of the tension between a wife and her husband, between a husband and his wife. But what the Bible gives us is that in the Christian home, ruled by the Holy Spirit of God, we have a lessening, a mitigating of the effects of the fall. 
And we know that because uh, some time ago when we looked at the, the teaching, the, the, the most elaborate teaching on the family in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 22, all the way through 6, 4, if you include parenting and children. And at the very beginning of that passage, it's very important as you look at it, in Ephesians 5, 18, it says this, be filled with the Spirit. So what we know is that everything we're gonna go on to read about in terms of how a wife relates to her husband, a husband relates to his wife, children relate to parents, parents relate to children, all of those dynamics must be flowing out of being filled with the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit, we father. We're filled with the Spirit, we mother. We're filled with the Spirit, we, we husband, we wife, if those can be turned into verbs. By being filled with the Spirit. And so here's what the New Testament says to the husband and the wife. God's original intention. This is God's lessening of the effect of the fall in the Christian home. Ephesians 5.22, this is for the wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, wives, be subject to your own husbands. What does the Lord say to the husbands? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not dominate her. Not make sure she knows your place. Make sure she knows you're the leader. That's not what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how a husband, a Christian husband, is to lead his wife, giving up himself, dying to himself, Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives. And here it is, do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter 3.7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Do you see this? This is the way in which a Holy Spirit-governed husband and a Holy Spirit-governed wife and a Holy Spirit-governed marriage works. The world knows nothing of this. Worldly husbands and wives might be best buddies. They might go back all the way to middle school. They might uh, take many vacations together. They might have great aspects to their marriage, but they don't have the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, this, though subtle, reigns. This fallenness, though subtle, reigns, even if it's not evident or obvious. In the Christian home, where this struggle is real, there's grace by the Holy Spirit. There's grace for the wife to submit to her husband, regardless of what he does. And there is grace for the husband to, submit, uh, to, to lead his wife lovingly, self-givingly, not harshly, sympathetically, regardless of what the wife does. Because the husband and the wife live as unto the Lord. Not to men or women. They live as unto the Lord. Praise God that in the Christian marriage, the Spirit reigns. The Spirit reigns. So why this judgment? We'll go back to this question. Why this judgment? Well, remember that this judgment is addressed to the woman. Okay, we can't, we can't actually strip that out of its context. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to explain how here we have something that affects the man too. And, and it's clearly a case of tension between the woman and the man. And we're to understand it in, in this general way, I think, as we go through. But we have to remember that this particular statement is addressed to the woman. Why? 
Well, what did Eve do? She disregarded her husband's words. It was her husband who told her not to eat or touch it. Maybe. Maybe she just inserted that word to touch it. But at least we know that her husband told her not to eat of it. She disregarded his word. She acted independently of her husband. She did her own thing. I'm just going to eat this fruit. I'm just going to do what it is I want to do without respect to my husband. She took control in leading her husband into sin. The Lord himself says, you obeyed your wife rather than me. So she leads him into sin. And Adam, in his rebellion against God, his idolatry of his wife, he sins for himself. Let me say one last thing before we move on to the final point, which is the termination. This is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Let me explain what I mean by that. It is the case that when we look out at a world in which historically women have been oppressed and dominated and mistreated, it is the case that we are to understand that this has its origin in the fall. The reason for this can be traced back to the fall. But this is in no way a justification for any man to say, well, this is the way it's, the way it's going to be. I'm just going to dominate my wife. We've already seen that any mindset like that is not from the Holy Spirit. Any mindset like that will destroy your marriage. Any mindset like that will dishonor God. And a perpetuation of a mindset like that may indicate you don't know God at all. So as we consider God's judgment on humankind, we've seen the toil and the tension, but now we come finally to the termination. So look at verse 19, the termination. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And here's what I want to draw your attention to. Till you return to the ground... For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here we are brought back to the creation of man in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The judgment that is addressed to the man is that he was taken from dust. By the way, taken from dust not to return to the dust. He was taken from dust to live on in immortality, in paradise, in a paradise, a a filled up earth. But instead, he will return to that dust. This judgment is addressed to the man because it was out of the dust that God made him. Remember Remember, woman was taken from the side of the man. But the man was made from the dust, and it was to the man that God gave the command and the consequence. If you eat, you will surely die. So it is to the man that God gives this judgment. And here's the judgment. Humans will not live upon the earth in immortality. They will not continue to eat from the tree of life. And we're gonna get that at the end of chapter three. The tree of life sustained their immortality. They will not continue to eat from the tree of life. They will suffer throughout life, and this suffering will culminate in death. The cessation of earthly life and the separation of the body from the soul. The body will rot in the earth. The soul will leave the body. This is physical 
death. So what does this text give us? Toil and tension right up to termination. That's what we have. Toil and tension right up until the termination. There aren't enough shiny things. There aren't enough luxurious vacations. There aren't enough stimulating drugs to cover over this raw fact of life in this fallen, dead, sin-sick world. Toil and tension right up until termination. I like the way Calvin fills out the picture for us. Moses says this, Moses does not enumerate all the disadvantages in which man by sin has involved himself, for it appears that all the evils of the present life, which experience proves to be innumerable, have proceeded from the same fountain. I mean, if we were to take a piece of paper and write all the bad things that we could think of, we would just keep going and going and going. There's so many things that we could think of. All disaster, disease, and death find their origin here in the fall. Job 14.1, I love the way Job puts it. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. That's the life of a human being. And in many parts of the world today, that is really the way it feels. In reality, it's the way it is. But in many parts of the world where there is much suffering, little food, murdering and killing by government regimes, suffering of various kinds, disease-ridden places, this is an experienced reality. Paul gives us this larger picture when he says in Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's broken. You're broken, I'm broken, the world is broken. It's messed up in all kinds of ways. But as we close this morning, I want us to see that it is into, it is into these sufferings, into these thorns, into this death that Christ comes. It's amazing to consider that Christ came into this mess. He left glory, the praises of angels, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He left glory and he entered into this mess. He labored as a man. He sweated as he worked. He suffered throughout his life. He wore the thorns upon his own head. What an image. No accident. What do they put on Christ's head as he's going to be crucified? They twist a crown of thorns. Now in that passage, it's meant to be a mockery of his kingly status. They put the robe and the scepter, a reed in his hand. They got this robe on him and they have a crown of thorns wrapped on his head and it's meant to mock him. Yeah, look at this king all bloodied and battered, wearing a thorny crown. But what imagery! He took the thorns upon his head. That means he took the very produce of the fall. He swallowed it up in his death. All of it, all of the fall, swallowed up in the death of Christ on the tree. Christ dies so that death will die forever. I want to end with this thought. We should not expect to escape the fall in this life. Let me say that to us comfortable American people. 
We, we somehow think, this is why we whine and moan when the smallest little discomfort comes into our lives because we don't get it. The world is broken. It hurts. It's not comfortable. And death is coming for all of us. A rotting corpse is coming for all of us. The sufferings of this life in various ways will come to each of us. So what expectations do we have for this life? They're inflated. They're so far inflated. We are a fallen people. Christ has not yet taken from us this reality. We will die. But though he die, he shall live. Jesus says, of the person who believes in him, though he die, he shall live. In Christ, we have overcome the fall, and one day all of that victory will be realized in a new heaven and a new earth. And all the swallowing up of death and sin and the fall that happened at the cross will be realized and appropriated by every single believer when we reach glory. But not so for the unbeliever. I read a story this week. It's horrible. I won't even get into the details of it. Something that happened to a man in Great Britain. It was just a horrible story. And I thought, all of that and then hell. How awful. That is the fate of every person who lives in rebellion against God in this life and who does not trust the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. All of this and then hell. But for those of us who know the Lord, I leave with this this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's coming for each of us who knows Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your forgiveness for all the ways that we inflate our expectations of what this life is to be. God, for all the ways that we adore and idolize this life, its exciting pleasures. Lord, we know that there are many joys in this life which you intend for us to embrace and enjoy. And we know that as we do it, we, we give you thanks. But God, in many ways, those are experienced as exceptions to a general reminder before our faces every day of the cost of sin on the world. So God, we pray that you would make us more grateful in those moments of joy, those moments of pleasure, those moments of friendship and family contentment and family joy and, and, and peace. But God, that we would have a right view of our brokenness in our world and that we would, we would groan within ourselves, come Lord Jesus. 
that we would look forward to the day, Christ, when you will come and these overcomings of sin and death and suffering and the fall will be realized. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his thorny crown. We thank you that he tasted from the tree of the cross that we might once again taste from the tree of life. In Jesus' name, amen.